Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hello, everyone here at the O'Reilly AI Conference, and I am with Francisco Weber, who gave a great talk earlier on AI is not a matter of strength, but of intelligence. Uh, so welcome, Francisco. Uh, hello. Uh, great to be here um, and to talk about my talk, actually. <laughs> nice. Uh, Why don't we start out by learning a little bit more about you and uh, hearing a bit about your background? Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, coming from the natural sciences. Uh, I'm trained in medicine in uh, Vienna, uh, but uh, I have since ever sort of a, a built-in affinity to technology and uh, ended up uh, sort of uh, going into the uh, natural language processing information retrieval domain where I'm in for like uh, 20 years now about. Um, I've been, uh, so Cortical.io is actually my third company. Uh, I previously worked in the field of patent uh, information, which is also a sort of complex uh, natural language issue. Uh, and that was basically where I learned of the limitations of the current systems. And that uh, motivated me to actually try and find something uh, substantially different. Okay. So tell us a little bit about Cortical. Um, yeah, so Cortical is all about um, two things, in fact. So one thing is a, a theoretical framework that we um, have discovered, I would say, and that we explore um, that uh, is about how uh, the human brain, uh, to be more specific, actually, the neocortex uh, supposedly uh, handles uh, language information. Um and the other is that we basically use this uh, theoretical framework uh, to also create a real technology that we uh, basically offer uh, to the markets. Uh, currently, uh, this is mainly for uh, enterprise customers. Um, they have a lot of problems out there and um, so to say the effort to revenue ratio um, makes us work there for a while. But uh, we do also have a, a public API where basically everybody can uh, play around with our technology uh, for free. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what the company uh, sort of does. Um, and uh, we try to um, find a really alternative way to deep learning and to the more uh, traditional ways of uh, uh, statistical modeling and machine learning. Um, for the moment, uh, we, our approach uh, doesn't actually use any statistics, so uh, which might not uh, be the case in the future. So there are some motivations uh, uh, to maybe team this up with deep neural networks or so. So that's, but in fact, it's not our speciality. So I leave this to others to try out. Um, what we basically do is that we have solved, I would say, or we have found a solution to uh, the famous representational problem that exists in uh, natural language understanding since decades, basically. A very fundamental issue is uh, that uh, basically says uh, if you find out um, how to represent uh, language, which means text at some point, uh, uh, in a way that you can actually compute with it, 
then uh, many of the big problems like uh, ambiguity, like uh, um, uh, vocabulary mismatch, all the traditional problems we have in in, in NLU uh, basically are solved in in one uh, in one approach and that's what I actually presented today is that by this little shift uh, in how to generate the features um, everything falls in place afterwards in a, in a very convenient and and uh, uh, most importantly uh, efficient uh, manner yeah. uh, so tell us about this shift. Yeah, so um, our um, approach basically is uh, founded on the work of uh, Jeff Hawkins, uh, uh, who is a, a researcher in, um, in in the area of uh, cortical processing. So he works on finding out how the human neocortex actually processes data. Uh, they, I say data in general because uh, one of his findings was that um, regardless what kind of data, so might it be uh, sound, uh, hearing or seeing or touching, uh, all of that data when it comes to the neocortex uh, looks the same. It is. It has the same format, uh, which is a what is called a sparse distributed representation. So it's like a large vector of uh, binary features. Uh, where you have like two of two to five percent of those features are actually set to one and all the rest is zero. And everything is encoded into such a, such an SDR. And that was basically, um, our first goal is to find a systematic, unsupervised, because otherwise it's uh, not doable in practice, uh, um, a systematic, unsupervised way of converting text into such a, uh, an SDR. Okay. Now, I've heard a couple of times, even at this event, um, there were a couple of comments that were made that was, one of them was, um, even I think in the key, keynotes this morning, there was a comment about how, you know, what we've got with neural nets are, don't have the complexity and the nuance uh, available to express what's actually happening in the brain. And and in another talk, the um, the kind of follow-on statement was, so therefore we shouldn't try. We should just use these as tools. And now it sounds like you, you have a totally different belief system around this. Uh, well, I mean, fundamentally, uh, what we use as neurons nowadays uh, has, in fact, very little to do with real neurons. Yeah? Right. Uh, so uh, it was an abstraction that was made like 30, 40 years ago yep. um, on a compared to today on a, on a very rudimentary understanding of what neurons actually do. Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, we know more. We know that, for example, the actual learning happens uh, through the building and unbuilding of uh, synapses between them. Um, and um, if you actually model a neuron, not not chemically, so it's not about sort of creating all the molecules that are there, right. because that's uh, something that uh, nature uses. Yeah? So nature, you know, in evolution, uh, you always have the components from the previous uh, evolutionary, evolutionary state, and you have to play with this kind of Lego bricks and do something, uh, which sometimes looks a bit inefficient. Uh, but uh, what is key on the other side is what is the mechanism that uh, those real neurons uh, create, uh, and that is what uh, uh, Jeff Hawkins actually uh, has figured out and is about to even figure out in more detail. Okay. Um, 
And so certain aspects like the, the sparse binary representation are actually key uh, for this to work properly. And uh, by working um, on text, so our approach was basically, okay, if Jeff is right with his theory, uh, everything he says about the general way how the cortex processes has also to be true for language, as the language is generated by the, by the cortex too. Mm -hmm. um, and so we basically took his theoretical framework as a set of constraints and we tried to say, okay, if that is the limitation, uh, how can I put everything I know about language in this, within this limitation? Mm -hmm. And uh, it took a while, actually 25 years or so <laughs> in general. <laughs> I mean, not, I, I, I know Jeff's work since, since a little bit over 10 years, but everything that was sort of needed to me at least uh, to sort of understand uh, um, and to operate at this abstraction level uh, took a while. Um, but uh, then I had at some point while I was uh, listening to his talks, reading his book on intelligence and so, and uh, it was literally uh, sort of taking a shower and in, in a second, I had this visual uh, idea, so to say, how how uh, this could happen. Okay. Um, because it boils down to a sort of uh, visual um, um, aspect in the sense that uh, as a necessity, we have to find a representation where two words that mean similar things have to actually look similar. And when I say look, their SDRs have to be similar uh, and literally similar. So in fact, and that's also what the brain is doing, uh, to put one word representation on top of the other word representation. And by measuring the overlap, how many of the bits actually stay at the same position, uh, you get uh, two things. One is how related are those words? Uh, and the second is by looking where the overlap happens uh, within this representation, because this is a, a two-dimensional, uh, it's like a bitmap with uh, 128 times 128 uh, pixels. Okay. And like 2% of those 16,000 uh, bits are set to one, therefore are like pixels, uh, uh, dark pixels, if you want. Okay. And so it's actually a visual thing. Um, and um, you can try this out on our website uh, when you take uh, two words that are sort of have a common uh, context or so, um, you can actually literally see that they look similar. Yeah? Uh, and interestingly, I mean, it's, it's hard to or maybe even impossible to absolutely decode what it means. But if you, uh, as I have done, stare a lot into these representations, you end up seeing the differences like in the blink of an eye. Yeah, you might not know the details, but mm -hmm. to identify that uh, two words are similar in this representation takes uh, a millisecond. Yeah? Uh, and that is already a a hint, so to say, um, that uh, uh, shows what the major gain is of this uh, approach, uh, which is efficiency. Yeah, and that's mm -hmm. what our brain is uh, famous for. So uh, I know that um, uh, on the deep learning, uh, in the deep learning community, things like uh, precision and so are the key metrics. Right. Uh, and they are, of course, important. Uh, it's like having glasses that are blurry. Yeah? Uh, nevertheless, um, at the very end, the choice of algorithm uh, is not so much on the precision, but uh, it relates to uh, 
down-to-earth energy efficiency. Yeah, I mean, the brain works with something like 10 watts or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I don't even want to know uh, how much uh, power the, the <laughs> GPU servers <laughs> right. eat right. up. And that is already a very good hint of uh, how well um, a certain approach is. Yeah, if, uh, and that's why I chose the title also uh, of Brute Force, because uh, um, statistics especially if you do statistics of uh, large combinatorial spaces like uh, like language. I mean, you, you basically can create an indefinite number uh, of uh, combinations of words to make meaningful sentences. Uh, so to do a, a statistics on, on such an open system, uh, it's a real hard work uh, because you have to provide endless examples uh, to have like a... Uh, micro bit of uh, a semantic payload in your representation yeah uh, and it it works up to a certain point no question i mean uh, the stati statistical systems work uh, but what you see is that uh, in order to make the model a little bit smaller or uh, to gain uh, a tenth of a percent in precision uh, you have to put a lot of effort in yeah so from to get from 60 to 61% precision you might even double the effort, uh, like going from one to sixty is the same as from sixty sixty to sixty one. Yeah. If uh, I could drag you drag you back a little bit, um, just it, it sounds like understanding the Jeff Hawkins stuff is important to understanding what you guys are doing to some degree. Um, yes, definitely. He, yeah. So they so he's defined this sparse data representation, this SDR, and is there also a uh, a different concept of a neuron that underlies that? Absolutely. So he's modeling a real neuron, but on the functional level. So he's also modeling a neuron, if you okay. want, but he's modeling everything that is relevant within the neuron for processing data is part of his model. And everything that might be housekeeping, uh, uh, building up proteins and stuff like that is not part of the actual uh, data processing layer and therefore not represented there. So he's basically tried to expand the simplistic uh, concept of a, a neural net neuron uh, to become a real neuron. And sometimes if you face the problem the way it is, uh, the solution is much easier uh, to understand. Yeah. Because uh, it's it's basically uh, a model-based approach versus a model-free approach. Okay. To sort of bring it in, into one sentence. Yeah. And so on this base of this more robust model of a neuron, there's this notion of the SDR, which yeah. is capturing, you know, when I think of a neuron, I think of, you know, there's state plus action, right? And so this is capturing state. There's even more. It's state, action, and time. And okay. that is key to what Jeff is doing. Okay. Um, because his networks have a time built in. Okay. Yeah, so it's not only of uh, deciphering a pattern of, of input bits, uh -huh. but it's uh, rather memorizing a sequence um, of patterns. Uh, because in reality, uh, things are interconnected, so to say. They right. have a semantics uh, built into the system, everything. Yeah? Uh, um, and uh, therefore, it is highly improbable, if not impossible, that... By having an initial state A, you can predict which are the, let's say, physical possible next steps. And that's what the processing relays on. 
Yeah, the fact that not like in statistics, um, after state A, any state could happen because I need to do the statistics for it. But the reality is that uh, after a step A, there is a certain set of steps which have all to be uh, possible in reality. And what we learn as uh, walking brains, if you want, is what are those potentials? What are the potential outcomes? And how many hints from the initial state uh, could point me to the right next state? And that's in the end uh, what the brain is doing. Yeah, the brain is nothing more than a sequence learning engine that does prediction based on what it has seen so far. And if you think through that um, on a, let's say, philosophical level, you will find out that you basically can solve or explain everything we do um, uh, that uh, basically follows this uh, basic computation. Yeah? So there are two interesting aspects to this. One is there is no processor. So the brain does this by being a memory system, which is interesting. I mean... In computers, it's exactly the other way around. Yeah? The processing happens in the processor, and uh, the RAM is just uh, a dormant uh, store. Yeah? Uh, and the brain obviously does this differently. Um, and and, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the other aspect is that the prediction is, in fact, the condensed intelligence, because the more I'm right in predicting, uh, the more I'm intelligent. And by the way, I mean, there, you know, there have been uh, very behavioral ways of looking at intelligence. Uh, that's the reason why the dog looks intelligent to the dog owner, because the dog owner knows the dog and knows what predictions the dog is making about things uh, and is right in doing so. And therefore, the dog indirectly, so to say, looks more intelligent to the owner uh -huh. than to everybody else. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. So does the does the SDR capture uh, all of that or just the state? So the SDR is all about uh, getting a um, an explicit representation of the state. So that's okay. the other difference uh, in in the world of brains and SDRs. You only work with what is called semantically grounded information. So every bit in the representation of the SDR actually corresponds to something real and concrete. So uh, uh, for the visual system, it's pretty easy because uh, in the end, uh, every bit of the image that is produced on the retina, uh, uh, if you have two dots that are close to each other and have the same color or nearly the same color, uh, you are probably right in guessing that they are part of the same item in the physical world. Yeah? Uh, if you have now a representation that gives you the same phenomenon, namely that two uh, bits that are set to one stay close to each other, uh, it's easy to guess that they are related and they are part of the same maybe subunit of the system. The only thing you have to be sure is that the data that is provided is actually inherently semantic. So it has to be part of a system in, on a very abstract level. Yeah? So uh, the world is a system, therefore any data that I can hear or see or so about the world uh, is semantic because there are rules of uh, physics, rules uh, of biology and so on. Uh, and the same thing is true for language. Language uh, is data that is inherently tied together by a framework of grammar, of uh, uh, syntax and all these aspects we know since a long time. 
but we have a, uh, we had the problem on uh, how to actually store these mechanisms. And the reality is, don't store the mechanism, but just store the examples, just store the detailed information, mm -hmm. uh, the explicit information. And are those words or are those? Uh, yeah. So in our approach, uh, we declare um, the um, the semantic atoms in language uh, to be words. I mean, there are like uh, uh, smaller units, um, like uh, phonemes, for example, right. but they have no meaning by themselves. So the first time you actually have a meaning is when you have a word. Yeah? Mm -hmm. uh, and all the subsequent meaning of a sentence, of a paragraph, a document, an utterance even, uh, comes out of the sequence of those words. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we do is basically we convert uh, every single word uh, into such a sparse uh, representation. We call this, because it's so hard to say, uh, we call this a semantic fingerprint. Okay. And uh, the interesting thing is that through the way how we convert the semantic fingerprint, uh, you take advantage of some of the properties that are inherent of sparse binary vectors. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, you can make a union of as many sparse vectors as you want and you don't lose information. Yeah? You can always say from an unseen vector if it was part of the union or not. If you try to do the same thing with a dense representation, uh, let's say uh, the, the ASCII encoding, yeah, you have eight bits and every possible combination corresponds to another uh, uh, character. If you make a union of a couple of them, no way to say right. what was the initial part. Yeah? Um, and as I said, uh, the, the generation of this pattern uh, is done in a way that every single pixel of our fingerprints correspond to an explicit uh, learned context. And you can, in fact... It's uh, not a word, a context. It's a context, which is basically, uh, technically, it's a bag of words, if you want. It's a bag of words of utterances in which the word occurred. Mm -hmm. And so is a... What's the scope of an SDR in this model? Is it uh, at the level of a corpus, at the level of a language, at the level of an utterance? Well, not an utterance, because uh, an utterance... In uh, fact, all of that. So the, 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 what we do is, in principle, we generate the atoms, which is a fingerprint for a word. Uh -huh. uh, but if I want to create um, a fingerprint for a sentence, I just convert every single word into its fingerprint. I make a stack and aggregate them together. I make an or of all of them. And then um, I have, depending on the location on the fingerprint, I have... You can do this because of this union property. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, That's the reason why we have to stay on the sparse side. Yeah? And if you make, for example, a union of, let's say, 10 words that are in a sentence, you, of course, fill up the, the representation. Mm -hmm. Therefore, uh, after making the union, we, we do what we call resparsify. Uh, we introduce a threshold uh, to cut away everything that fills the fingerprint on more than the 2%. Mm -hmm. And so we end up with a fingerprint for a sentence that has basically the same topology that is directly comparable uh, to a fingerprint of a word. And we can do this with a sentence, with a paragraph, with a book. Yeah, of course. So you does the SDR for a book um, or for whatever? Let's say a book. Is it n dimensionality, where n is the number of unique words in the book? Um, no. So there is the topology, and there is 
that's the name why why we call it semantic folding there is this uh, semantic space folded into the representation so the way how we do this how we generate uh, the word sdrs is that we take a collection of documents which are the reference documents that's for a human that would be everything you ever read and heard yeah all language elements that you got exposed to um and uh, we digest them, uh, and we do this, of course, using machine learning because we are not like humans. We have not the time to wait uh, 20 years or so. Uh, so that's, in fact, where we apply machine learning. Uh, and what we do is that we, uh, first of all, cut the training material in little pieces, and then uh, we define the size of our fingerprint, which is a metric space, so there is no dimensionality if you want it's a two-dimensional metric space and we position all of our training snippets on this space uh, in a very simple rule um, two snippets that are similar stay close together and two snippets that are different uh, stay far apart from each other and then it's you know one of these uh, classical iterative algorithms uh, similar to uh, uh, Hebian learning a bit like this local inhibition mechanism. And what you end up with is that you have uh, all snippets about uh, animals in one region, all snippets about uh, family in another region, and so on. And you get a semantic map. And this semantic map is basically used to encode every word. Because I can take all the words that are in my uh, training material, and for each of the words, I can say, light up the positions of the snippets where this word occurs in. And then you get this distributed representation. And because you have the folded-in uh, uh, semantics, so to say, two similar words, like cat and dog, uh, look similar if you look them on the, on the semantic map uh, representation of the fingerprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you mentioned earlier, uh, kind of a you gave an example of a one twenty eight by one twenty eight yeah. matrix. At, at that size matrix, like what are you able to represent? Like is that a, a book? Uh, all of the books I've ever uh, read, or so what it actually represents is a semantic space, uh, okay. uh, because it's 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 the the fundamental of the representation. And if you just do the math of uh, selecting three hundred bits, which is about uh, close to 5% of 16,000 bits, uh, the number of combinations you can do is like uh, the number of stars in the Milky Way. So it's a huge combinatorial space. Um, and as you know, uh, we have not the same assumption as in statistics that in principle, every word could be combined to every other word. Yeah, so that's one of the uh, central um, uh, uh, simplification methods is to say in the language statistics uh, that uh, every word is independent, which is absolutely not true. Yeah, you, if you have on the semantic level uh, a certain set of adjectives that you associate to a certain noun. Yeah, um, uh, so uh, there is semantic sort of uh, glue between everything, and in reality, that uh, shrinks uh, the combinatorial space, and that's precisely what we need to learn the semantics of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Um, so this, uh, there are elements of this that, that remind me of word to vec 
Like, is it are there parallels yeah. that it's it's um, it's a, a natural development uh, that we have started uh, uh, NLP and information retrieval with so-called document vectors. Uh, everything was sort of derived from a document, uh, and we found out. Uh, over the years that word vectors, the representation of individual words uh, seems to be more appropriate. Uh, nevertheless, um, there is a uh, fundamental but crucial difference. So word to vec like other word embedding um, mechanisms, uh, use, they try to do um, dimensionality reduction and they end up with a dense vector. And to put even more on it, uh, a dense vector of double or float numbers, so sort of computationally expensive uh, representations. Uh, we don't do a dim dimensionality reduction. Uh, we might even do uh, an increased di dimensionality at some point, if you want. Um, but we make it a sparse uh, representation. So we have uh, sparse binary vectors versus dense uh, floating point vectors, the double uh, vectors, yeah, which already sort of gives you a hint on uh, where the efficiency will be. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so I, um, have we talked through, have we got to what you talked about in your talk or has this all been background? Uh, yeah, to your so talk? I mean, I, I was talking. Because <laughs> my head already hurts. <laughs> uh, I, I understand. I mean, especially because you are listening to this uh, without any visual support. Uh -huh. And this is a very visual thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. typically when I, when I show this and people see the, the fingerprints on the screen and how they interact and how they overlap, uh -huh. you can see in their faces, ah, I understand this. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to know anything about machine learning or so. Yeah. It's so intuitive, but if I imagine to sort of follow a description that is purely verbal, then <laughs> you're doing a great job. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so the the, um, uh, the rest basically was that I gave a number um, uh, of practical examples where we apply this. Okay. Um, uh, and I can cite uh, a few. Uh, for example, um, we do um, pro let's say we, we have certain prototype ways of solving typical problems. And uh, what is the case is that we solve all of them with one unique operator, which is similarity. Yeah, so we only the only sort of verb we have in our universe is, is similar or is not similar. And uh, so one thing you can do, of course, is search. Yeah, so you can... And since you're operating on uh, essentially these sparse vector representations, is when you hear similar, like, is it fair to think geometrically similar, geographic? Uh, yeah, literally. Geometrically, so, literally? so we actually measure this by uh, calculating the overlap between two fingerprints, which is the most generic way. I mean, we, we do offer a number of distance metrics. As I said, this is a metric space, so we have uh, different ways of calculating a distance metrics, like a Euclidean distance and others. Uh, but uh, I have to say that, in fact, the pure overlap count is fully sufficient to get uh, the result out of it, and it's very computationally efficient. Yeah? Um, so one of the prototypes, as I said, is search. Uh, imagine you have a collection of documents, you convert each of the documents into a fingerprint, you have a user who types in uh, a language-based query, now, I'm looking for uh, information about red sport cars, uh, you create a fingerprint of that query, and you just match how much overlap you have between all the documents and the query, and you rank all your documents according the, to the size of the overlap. 
very generic. Uh, it's um, it's it's a real search mechanism. So what you get is really uh, all the balanced aspects that you have in a document. So it's not just does a document contain the word sports car, uh, but it's uh, about the aspects that you might have developed in, in a document that make it match or less. And in theory, the document need not even say sports car in it exactly. because you're doing similarity to the, this conceptual yeah, yeah, map. Yeah, yeah. So it could be the race car. It could be a text about the right. race car. And my query could be about sport cars and it would still sort of give a, a good match. Yeah. And how does it apply to non-English languages? I didn't hear anything English-specific. Completely, completely independent of languages. Um, so, as I used to say, uh, give me enough uh, uh, dictionaries and en encyclopedias in Klingon and I put you up a Klingon system, no problem. <laughs> um, um, the point is that uh, we have even uh, brought this to a step further because we were able to not only train in different languages, the semantic spaces, but to also topologically al align them. And as a result, uh, and I gave the example in, in my talk, we take the word uh, philosophy in English has a certain representation and the word philosophy in French has the same representation. So the, pa the patterns are the same. And what this means is you could have a system that uh, contains English documents and you can uh, post uh, French queries and it would still work yeah? without any translation or, or anything in between. Only for those words that have a fair degree of overlap, or well, the the, the word uh, the words with the same meaning, regardless right. of the language, have the same fingerprint. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, um, a second prototype where I could give you an example uh, is classification. Mm -hmm. So our classifiers are actually just fingerprints. I don't need to train my classifier. If I say I want to get, uh, uh, let's say, all the tweets about mobile phones, I can take the word mobile phone, create a fingerprint, and then compare the fingerprint of every incoming tweet to my fingerprint uh, uh, of the word mobile phone. And uh, even if it talks about iPhone, uh, it will have sufficient overlap for me to detect it. And even if the tweet is in Chinese... Uh, it will be converted into something that I can filter with my English mobile phone fingerprint. Yeah. Even if simultaneously in Chinese, yeah. because you're fingerprinting that based on its language representation, it's, exactly. and yeah. there's the and in similarity the end, exactly. is um, transferable from one to so the it, next. The, the 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 Chinese description of the new iPhone uh, generates the same fingerprint as the English description of the new iPhone. Why is that? Because the should we I be have, surprised at that? I mean, yeah, that's, definitely. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, definitely, you should be surprised. Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, people who know two languages are able to do this in the same way. Yeah? So there has to be a, let's say, mathematical way of doing this. Uh, and the point is that um, uh, we aligned the two semantic spaces. Uh, so we have one topology that we generate in one language, and we can then, with a with a pure uh, dictionary lookup mechanism, which is the dumbest way of uh, doing a translation, right. we can convert all the distributed snippets in the vocabulary of the other language and use the same distribution that we have trained with, the, for example, the English method. Uh, and therefore, uh, you have now the convenience to listen, let's say, to the Twitter firehose, and regardless of what language uh, message comes along, you can uh, filter it uh, with an English example.
And I've done that uh, just to give you a, a feeling on efficiency. Uh, I've done that in real time on uh, the fire hose with my notebook. Yeah, so it was sort of uh, running locally. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to run enough. through the. I'm trying to run through the physical analogy, or the biological analogy of this. Like, in, you know, if the if the notion here is that you've kind of extracted this model that you know, more closely represents what's happening in the, the, the brain, then, and, and you can, you have this kind of transferability across languages. Um, is there some, you know, again, we're kind of way beyond, you know, the pale of what's actually going to happen, but like, is there some, like you take the, you know, some part of the brain from someone who learned Chinese and you transplant it into uh, a person, you know, and then, you know, who has some other part of the brain that is kind of symbolically linked to English and they could then, you know, yeah, translate I mean, on the fly, like, uh, yeah, in yeah. theory? In theory, that would be possible. The truth is that uh, there has been research, uh, for example, comparing uh, the brain patterns of uh, people who have who have been grown up with two languages. Mm -hmm. They have, uh, they have a... a sort of speech area in the brain that is actually um, uh, intricately mixed. Yeah? So the, the, the two languages are represented in a, in a mixed fashion, whereas people who have been grown up in one language and who have then learned the other one, they have added a second area, so to say. Uh, and that's the reason why uh, a native speaker of two languages can actually easily do translation on the fly mm -hmm. uh, and can uh, listen or read text in two languages without even noticing that there might be two languages. Right. Uh, and someone who has just... Uh, learned another language has always in his head to map from the one region into the other region. Now, interestingly, um, there is, a, and I showed this also in my presentation, um, there is uh, um, um, sort of um, new research uh, in, in brain science that uh, supports our representation strongly. Uh, so they were able to uh, do an fMRI study, uh, to be precise. So there has been an earlier version of this experiment uh, where people were exposed to words, and then they made like snapshots from their fMRI activity. Uh, and what uh, they found out, uh, it was in, in Carnegie Mellon, if I remember well, uh, what they found out is that uh, you can actually uh, calculate, starting with the picture, an fMRI picture, you can say what word this person was hearing when this picture was taken. Yeah, so this is, as you say, wow, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it, it comes better. Uh, and they have sort of trained a uh, machine learning algorithm to make this transfer, to correlate the picture with the, the word that the persons uh, have been hearing. And uh, the absolutely unbelievable thing is that, uh, let's say you have been in the fMRI first, uh, the model has been trained on your images to map to certain terms. Uh, if now you present this very same model, the images taken from my brain, it will still recognize uh, the terms properly. Uh, and that Independent is, of whether we speak the la same language? No, I'm... Uh, are we talking I, about... Th this has language. been done in English. Yeah? Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that even if uh, I would do this with, with the Portuguese meaning of your uh, English terms, it still might work out. Right. Or maybe not Chinese. But... but um, uh, why not? <laughs> uh, the, the, the fact is that obviously if two individuals have been grown up 
it's uh, sufficiently similar from a cultural point of view. Yeah, so we both went to school for more or less the same time. We more or less read the same stuff. We've heard about the world in the same uh, way. Uh, the representation ends up being similar across individuals. And in the end, it's, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just imagine if we would really be wired completely different from one to each other, uh, it's, it would be very hard to have a simple conversation. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, if you, if you do the, the, the investigation, for example, I'm pretty sure, again, this is just guessing, but the fMRI pictures from, uh, I don't know, some distant tribe living somewhere in the Amazonian jungle, there the overlap between the two representations is probably less because they have just not been exposed to a very similar, uh, kind of environment. Yeah. Um, and, and there is a newer uh, publication which is, I think, it's, it's from this year. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's from a lab in the MIT. Uh, and there they were actually able to create a map of about 1,000 words uh, on the basically nearly the entire uh, cortex. And, and what it shows is that every, it's not like every word has a specific position, but every word has a pattern of all sorts of positions all over the cortex that lights up, which is, in fact, uh, exactly what we are doing with our uh, fingerprints. Yeah? So uh, I claim uh, that uh, we are the first NLP algorithm that gets support by fMRI. <laughs> wow, wow. So this is fascinating stuff. How, how do you help people make it practical? Like, what, if I'm... You know, if what what are the problems that hey, if I have this problem, I should be looking at this as a possible approach. So, so as I said earlier, we are very strong with this approach in doing uh, similarity calculation and therefore classification. Mm -hmm. And as you might know, in business natural language processing, nearly all problems can be reduced to one or several classification problems. Okay. Uh, uh, so we do all sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, uh, companies who say, uh, we want to classify our inbound emails, um, in, um, uh, product requests, uh, complaints, and, uh, I don't know, looking for a person, an individual, uh, in the company, uh, and believe it or not, uh, I haven't seen any working machine learning solution for that problem out there. I mean, I've been visiting uh, like 150 companies over the last two years, uh, of course, trying to sell our stuff. Right. Uh, but I haven't seen a working solution for simple, I mean, this is really one of the most basic issues you could have. Uh, and uh, nearly nobody is actually using um, technology for that uh, because um, the, the, the statistical approach uh, has uh, a lot of noise that comes in, has false positives, which is, by the way, the, the biggest problem uh, in business. Uh, and we solve, we solve this in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so we, we make use of the efficiency of the approach in solving this kind of problems within very short time um, uh, for people. And so that's, that's a specific use case. Are there, is there like a higher level characterization, like, you know, uh, in terms of problem? Yeah. So we have uh, customers uh, in the domain, uh, in uh, a lot of customers, for example, are in the banking domain. Uh, there we solve problems like uh, compliance monitoring, know your customer uh, activities, 
um, or automation of business processes that depend on some text input at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, we have um, uh, consumer good companies uh, who want to know uh, um, how to segment their customers, for example. Uh, we have a manufacturing industry where, uh, for example, in technical products, the documentation, the, the manual of the product is so complicated good example is car industry, for example. A, a modern car is so complicated that uh, if something breaks, uh, you need to visit the manual or to find out what is this funny light meaning there. Is this uh, dangerous or can I just continue? Um, and uh, people can't find anything uh, because they have the problem that um, uh, the person in the car doesn't speak uh, the technological language. Uh, so uh, uh, an example that I've, uh, that I've learned is um, uh, the, the query, where do I find a donut? Uh, in in US, yeah. So I didn't know that before, but obviously the donut is a spare wheel uh, that is sometimes pretty good hidden. So if you look for donut in the in the manual, you probably don't find it. Yeah, and there is a lot of these issues. Yeah, uh, I mean to be. Uh, even a more extreme case, uh, a person uh, speaking only Spanish, uh, driving a U.S. car and being unable to actually find uh, the, the, the right answer could use our uh, system to sort of pose a, a Spanish query and be pointed to an English page, for example, and things like that. Uh, so, as I said, I mean, uh, in principle, we have uh, solutions all across um, the domain. Uh, we can do things like, uh, for example, um, the, you have a LinkedIn profile, you describe yourself uh, in your LinkedIn profile. I can make a fingerprint of your profile. And if I do a fingerprint of my profile, we probably have a lot of overlap as we are interested in the same kind of topics. Traditionally, to make matching of people in HR, for example, uh, you needed to actually, if one person says, uh, uh, I'm expert in G2EE, right. and the other person or the, or the job description contains Java Enterprise, uh, there was no way fragile. of matching it. Yeah? yeah. In our case, we match this uh, easily. Right. Wow. Uh, so, th very fascinating stuff. How can folks learn more, find out more about it, uh, contact you? So, uh, basically on our website, uh, cortical.io, uh, what and you that's find. C-O-R-T-I-C-A-L.io. Exactly. Um, uh, you can go there, you find a white paper where you get basically a, a more in-depth introduction to the whole approach. Uh, you find uh, access to a public uh, REST API that you can play around. It's trained on uh, Wikipedia, on English Wikipedia data. Uh, you can then uh, even spin up uh, an instance containing the software on uh, Amazon or Azure uh, to play around if you have more proprietary data or so that you that you want to use. Um, and of course, you can contact us um, uh, if you need help uh, to sort of get started. I mean, the problem is that uh, many of us who have been struggling uh, using conventional tooling, um, sometimes it needs a little bit of help to sort of get the right angle on how to solve something. Yeah. Uh, so we do, for example, offer uh, a keyword extraction functionality. You can throw in uh, a text and you get like the 10 most important keywords out of it. Yeah. And I've observed that uh, many people uh, try to systematically extract keywords and then try to do some magic with that. And uh, um, I just told them, okay, that keywords, you need them if you want to show keywords at some point, but <laughs> you don't need them to make any computation because you can compare the fingerprints directly. Right. 
So yeah, it's There's uh, a bit of a mind shift, a, a that change needs to of happen. mindset. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. Uh, well, thanks so much, Francisco. It was, it was great talking to you and uh, amazing learning a little bit about what you guys are up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Yep, Bye-bye. Thank All right, everyone, that's it for today's show. Please leave a comment on the show notes page at twimlai.com slash talk slash 10 or tweet to me at at Sam Charrington or at twimlai to discuss this show or just reach out and let me know how you liked it. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.